Listener Production. My favourite photo of Denny Todorovic shows them standing in a field of bright yellow canola in front of a blue cloudless sky. Denny is wearing a black suit jacket, crisp white shirt and tie, and a magnificent billowing tutu. Denny is a podcaster, content creator, former fashion editor and queer activist. You might know them on Instagram as Style by Denny. And they have indeed styled just about every Australian celebrity you can think of, from Delta Goodrum to Samantha Jade. I was so delighted when Denny agreed to join me to discuss growing up without the words to describe their gender identity, to dive into the limited binary fashion choices so many of us still make, and to unpack religion, spirituality and self-love. The Bible that's been written by men is choosing to ignore me from this narrative. So I have no problems with all made upstairs. We're good. We still speak. But it's the people and the organisation that I have no desire to ever have anything to do with. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Linda Mariano from Brooke and Linda's Dream Club for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, listen and read this weekend. But first, here's my chat with the truly awesome Denny Todorovic. Denny Todorovic, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. In my reading about you on the internet slash light stalking, I found out that in February of 2020, you attended an event celebrating Pride. You were invited to discuss your queer journey with 19 others and that you had a life-changing moment. Can Mm. you tell me about that? I did. You've done your research. I have. So, yeah, I was invited by Levi's to a really beautiful event um, to kick off Mardi Gras season just before the world went to shit with COVID basically, yeah. literally a month before. So we were invited to this event. We were all sat around. It was very like red table talk. There was no social media aspect of this event. It wasn't to like raise the profile of Levi's. It was just to facilitate mm. a queer conversation, which was beautiful. And it was hosted by a queer journalist, Pat Abood, who I love. And it just felt really safe. So we went around the room. We introduced ourselves with our pronouns and how we identify. And then we kind of gave everyone a little five minute spiel of our story. And the person to my left was a non-binary person, a non-binary actor who I'd seen on telly before, but never met in real life. And when they started to speak, I actually was kind of fighting back all my feels, tears or shock almost in a way, because everything that they were saying is exactly how I had felt my whole life. And it's really funny because before the event even started, I just instinctively felt really like drawn to that person and we're the same star sign and we're born just like a few days apart. So there was this instant kind of camaraderie and kinship there. And when they started speaking, I was just like, holy moly, I think this is exactly how I feel. So then after the event, I sort of, we followed each other on Instagram and I said, would you mind if I gave you a call at some point this week's A lot of what you said really spoke to me and I'd like to speak to you about this privately. So that event really changed my life in so many ways, yeah. It's interesting. I um, became disabled a few years ago and I have felt that kind of affinity Mm. to a handful of celebrities who talk about 
their bodies changing and disability in the time since then. So much so that I've, you know, sent Instagram DMs to people with millions and millions of followers <laughs> who are idea. not going to see my DM being like, that's exactly how I feel. And there is something to that sense of, I don't know if it's validation or mm. being seen or helping you sort through your own messy thoughts because somebody else has done the work already? Absolutely. I think you've just touched on something really special there. I'm a huge believer in, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And often you can't be yourself until you see yourself. And sometimes that might be, you know, you can't hear yourself until you've heard it elsewhere. So in that moment, I really felt that. I was watching last night The Bachelorette and actually Osha said that in the first 10 minutes. And I was just like so emotional because I completely resonate with that if you don't have these people, I mean, I, before even meeting this person years prior, I'd seen non-binary people on TV or Sam Smith came out as non-binary. There were all these kind of, you know, as you say, celebrities with millions of followers who will never see our DMs. But in those moments, I just remember feeling so grateful for people like Sam Smith for speaking their truth because they made my journey a little bit easier. And then you know, hopefully our conversations will help other people's journeys, you know, along the way at some point. So yeah, it's quite a beautiful thing to be able to feel that. Hey. Yeah. So in the vein of our conversation, helping other people's, I know that there are a huge number of people who still think about gender in a really binary way. Mm. And I think a lot of the community also think about transition in a really binary way as well. Can you explain to me why that doesn't work for you mm. and for so many others? Absolutely. So I think firstly to, I guess, educate your audience on what all of this shit means to be completely transparent. And um, a binary construct of any form is one that consists of two things. So for a very long time, gender was considered to be binary consisting of male and female. For a long time, also transitions were considered to be quite binary because we would have this male to female, Bruce to Caitlyn Jenner, you know, or the other way around. To exist and identify as someone that is non-binary by definition means that, you know, you don't identify with the gender that was assigned to you at birth, okay? That's the, that's the definition of transgender. And then to be non-binary simply means that your gender identity exists beyond that binary. So I'm neither male or female. I'm also not both. For me personally, I don't feel as though I'm both. I'm neither. I'm a combination of, I'm somewhere floating in the ether. And when you actually do your research, if you look at culturally through time, many, many cultures, particularly indigenous cultures across the world, have always celebrated non-binary, sometimes they call them like third gendered peoples. In fact, these people were actually put on a pedestal as kind of holy people because they're, you know, unique and special and kind of magical in a weird way. So it's interesting that over time we've seen that with colonization and racism and sort of Christianity, capitalism even, the gender construct has become more and more binary because a non-binary gender system doesn't really work for the church or for capitalism or for patriarchy or racism or any of that. So, Denny, let's go back in time a little bit. Tell me a little bit about what you were like as a kid and maybe when you first started to realise that you might be queer. Sure. So I grew up in Geelong, 
which is where I'm recording from today, in a beautiful family environment. Um, I'm ethnic. My family are Serbian slash Romanian by way of India. It's a long story. Um, so, you know, very kind of brown skin upbringing. Lots of family, lots of food, lots of music, no personal space or boundaries, um, <laughs> but, you know, loved it. But I guess growing up in Geelong as a fairly small, I call it a big city with a small town mentality, right? Um, and, and a town that is really driven by football and sport. So yeah. very hetero, very mask for mask. That's not an ideal scenario to be, exist in as a queer person at all. Neither is really being ethnic and neither is being religious. And I was all three of those things. So I think for me, my earliest memories of feeling queer not that I knew what that meant at the time, was as early as four. Like I knew from age four that I liked people who have penises. And I knew even before then that I wasn't really a boy or a girl. I just didn't really know how to ever articulate that. But certainly by the time I started primary school, which was at four and a half, I was an early bird, I could see the kids around me and I could see that the boys would gravitate towards having crushes on girls and the girls would, you know, have crushes on boys. And I didn't fit into that system and I was always friends with the girls. Like every girl wanted to be my bestie, but they didn't want to kiss me and I didn't want to kiss them either. So I knew that from a really early age, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you talk about language as well and the power of language. Mm -hmm. I feel so happy that kids growing up now will grow up with language that perhaps wasn't around when you and I yeah. were kids. I'm generously putting myself in the same age group as you, which I think, I think we are. Quite, nah, I think I'm being quite generous. I'm 33, actually. nearly 34. Okay, well, we're, we're close. Right. We're close. We spoke to Dr. Eve Reese, who's trans, uh, I was a few weeks back, I think, on the weekend briefing, mm. and they talked about growing up without the language mm. to describe the feelings they were having and the gift at 30 something of being given words to describe how they felt about themselves and had always felt but just didn't really know what to call it mm. before then. It's pretty tremendous. I mean, language literally has the power to make you feel more validated and seen and safe and heard. And, and without that language, you can often walk around the world feeling really lost. And language is something... You know, for me, English wasn't my first language growing up. So, but it definitely became my passion. And I'm a words of affirmation kind of human. That's my love language. I love writing and reading. So when I can finally pinpoint words like terms like non-binary, transgender, when I can wrap my head around the concept of internalized racism or internalized queer phobia, all of this language never existed in my house. Like my parents, you know, I had to explain to my mum what misogyny means, what feminism means, because English isn't her first language. So when you don't have that language growing up, it can be even harder to try figure out where you fit in the fold. And generally speaking, in at least in the Serbian language, Balkan languages, their words aren't very nice for queer people. They don't have these mm. like beautifully constructed words like we do here. The words feel somewhat more derogatory. Um, and I guess in many ways we've reclaimed the power of those words because queer was a derogatory term in the 70s and 80s. So, you know, it's just really interesting how much of a role language plays in your identity. You are a celebrity stylist. Can I ask who influenced your style when you were a teenager? Before this was a mm. job, who did you look to when it came to clothes? My mama, absolutely my mama. All the women in my family, 
have been, you know, obsessed with glamour, I would say, makeup, hair, clothing, since I was little. And being an ethnic kid with a really, really big family, you'd have a wedding to go to like every other month or even every other weekend, to be honest. So you'd be watching all the Rallos show up in the dresses and the thing and you're like, oh, what's Auntie Kathy wearing and what's Auntie this one wearing? And you're just like, wow, okay. So that was a really huge inspiration for me. And then second to my mum and my family, I grew up watching Days of Our Lives and The Bold and the Beautiful and the women in those shows <laughs> were so glamorous and I was just like, oh, my so God. So extra. So extra. What You know, what's Marlena wearing this week and what's, you know, Spectra and Forrester and all of those characters obsessed. They were my, they were hugely my icons. And then thirdly was Madonna. We're a big Madonna house growing up and I just was obsessed with her and she uses fashion in such a beautiful way. So, yeah, they would be my three key inspos. I feel like Madonna has that ability Mm. to keep reinventing herself that now you see more pop stars and Mm -hmm. celebrities kind of embracing that but she was the first right to say I can just come back and do it differently every single time and that's okay yeah yeah absolutely kids clothing is still super duper gendered I mean adult clothing is too but kids in a in a particular way and I know my little boy used to play so beautifully with clothes Mm -hmm. and he would wear fairy skirts and high-vis vests and wear glitter nail polish at the same time at a tiger tail, you know, to finish the look. And now he's six and he started school Mm. and I can see that playfulness fading. Mm. How do you think we can keep kids, all kids, especially boys, but kids, Mm. having fun with fashion and being free with their clothing choices? So I'm really glad you've raised this point because I, I feel that so viscerally. I have so many little kids around me and I think that when kids are at home, they're generally their truer self. You know, when I was a kid, I was wearing mum's bridesmaid's dress around the house, but when I went to school, I knew that I couldn't really, you know, that wasn't socially yeah. acceptable. I think we're very fortunate now in that we live in a, a world, not in all parts of the world, but certainly in Australia where you can have a lot more freedom and autonomy over what you wear when you leave the house. And hopefully that can be received in a way that is safe. I think with children, generally the fear that I see come from mothers, the mothers around me and the mothers that are in my digital community is that, you know, oh, the kids are going to get bullied. I don't want them to get bullied. You know, I don't want to make their life any harder than it has to be. So honey, like leave the tutu at home, just put the football guernsey on and, you know, let's call it a day. I think it really all stems from your house. If you instill in your home to your children that who they are is a strong, beautiful, resilient human first and foremost, then what they wear is just an extension of that. And it does come with a bit of reinforcement from the parents. You know, you have to kind of be really real with your kids and say, well, you know, darling, not everyone might like the way that you dress, but that's fine. And if you can slowly but surely build that confidence within them, you know, maybe they might wear the tutu to casual dress day or to, you know, kinder or whatever. But I think that kids only adopt judgment or prejudice when it's given to them. Generally speaking, kids are the most innocent humans on the planet because they just see love and they just see they're very wholesome. So, you know, they're not going to walk into a park and pick on someone unless there is some kind of prejudice that's been put in their mind about the choice of, you know, that person's representation. My vision is to be the kind of parent that creates a world where my kid has fun with his clothes and wears whatever he wants. But at the same time, I also know 
that I don't necessarily do that, mm. right? And we've all spent 18 months inside away from work. And I think there's been some real positive things in that space when it comes to fashion. We found comfort. We've put away clothes that made us feel not great about ourselves. But at the same time, I don't think I've particularly gotten out of activewear or tracksuits for 18 months. And I'm a little bit anxious about re-entering the world and trying to figure out who I am with clothes again. Are you finding that when you're speaking to clients or celebrities you're styling for magazines that everyone is not so much in a fashion rut right now as just doesn't even know what's going on. Absolutely. So my career has pivoted a little bit in that I don't style celebrities anymore. It was a huge part of my life, but I don't do it anymore. But the conversations that I'm having on a daily basis are with the people within my sort of digital community on Instagram, just people in my family. And then also I've just started hosting a fashion podcast for Mamma Mia called What Are You Wearing? So we talk a lot as colleagues about the reintegration of stepping back into the world, stepping out of the tracksuits and stepping into the heels again. And absolutely, it's scary. You know, fashion to me is very reflective of the world that we're living in. And for the last two years, we've been inside and we've been looking for warmth and security. And fashion could almost always play this role as like a security blanket. So, you know, when you're in lockdown, when the world is feeling really noisy outside, you tend to go for comfort and, and even down to fabrication. I've been, the amount of fleecy kind of robes and pajamas and things that I've bought, I've never bought more of that stuff in my life because I need a hug. And it feels like, you know, these clothes have hugged us for the last two years. And now suddenly we have to step back out and like put shapewear on and a pair of heels. And I'm like, what the hell is happening? When it comes to that topic, I would just say to people, you know, be kind to yourself, take it easy. There's no rush to get back in those heels. You know, there are many ways to reintegrate and take elements of that security blanket out into the world with you. When it comes to reintegrating, this time is actually not a race. You take your time and you wear whatever you want. <laughs> you mentioned earlier in our chat that you grew up in a religious household. You were a practicing Jehovah's Witness as a child. Mm -hmm. Can you share with me a, a moment or a story from your childhood that perhaps felt ordinary to you mm. but would have seemed unusual or fascinating to someone who wasn't from a religious family. Can you take us inside that experience? Sure. I always say that being a Jehovah's Witness is more of a lifestyle than it is a religion because it is a full-time gig in the same way that being a practicing Muslim is, in the same way that being a Jew, you know, all of those things. It is a lifestyle. It's not just, you know, I've observed my Orthodox family, my Serbian Orthodox family, they go to church twice a year at Christmas and at Easter, and that's about it. As a Jehovah's Witness, we used to go to church three times a week, Tuesday nights, Thursday nights, Sunday mornings. We used to go door knocking every weekend. That's a non-negotiable. We used to do it every Saturday. Sometimes we'd also do it on a Sunday. So it was very common for me to be, you know, each week spending upwards of 10 to 15 hours, like studying the Bible. Another thing that we used to do was every Thursday night at church, we would have this thing called the theocratic ministry school where you get an assignment and you get like a scripture of the Bible. And then you have to provide like a speech to the whole congregation on this like topic. So it actually, one of the benefits of that religion was that it taught me a lot about public speaking and analyzing and, and doing your research. 
But these were just common things. So while all the kids at school were just like coming home to watch The Simpsons, Denny and Mikey, my brother, were like getting in the shower, putting on a three-piece suit at like the age of 10 and 11 and going to church and delivering like a sermon in front of 100 people. That was very normal. This was very normal. Also, I guess another aspect of that religion is that you're made to feel like what you believe is the truth and the outside world is not. So much so that Jehovah's Witnesses refer to the world and people within that world as worldly. So as a witness, you kind of have to make a choice to not associate with so many worldly people. You know, you can't do worldly things. You can't go to nightclubs. You can't go to, you know, even concerts are sometimes frowned upon. So it's a really insidious experience. You know, I'm very conscious of never sort of bashing it because my brother is still a witness and I'm all about people believing whatever they want to believe. But it, the only way I can describe it is as that because it is it seeps into your every single choice, every single thing you decide, you know, down to whether or not you accept a blood transfusion in like a life or death operation. Like it's wild. How do you separate yourself from something that is so all-encompassing and shapes every element of your not only your life but the way you think? It never really leaves you. I won't lie. My family kind of had to make this choice almost in, do they support their son when I came out as gay? So I was 19 when I came out as gay, or do they remain being faithful to this religion of which tells them to banish their son if they are in fact gay? That was a real crossroads moment. I have the best parents in the world. They sacrificed a lot and decided to support me. You know, they still believed in Jehovah and continue to, but they didn't, you know, they weren't practicing. So that moment was really interesting because we were all kind of going on this transition. But to be completely honest with you, that was 19, I'm 33. So like, let's say 13, 14 years. Still to this day, I pray to God every day. I still call God Jehovah. I still often find myself thinking back to scriptures or things that we'd learned. And then you kind of look at the world and you go, "Mm, I wonder if that is true. I wonder if we really are living in the last days and Armageddon's going to strike down at any given time. But it does take some time to really disconnect from that. But I think the way that I reconciled it was that I believe in a higher power. And if the higher power is what I've been learned to believe they are, they're full of love. They've created all of us with love. So they don't hate me. Their people hate me. Organized religion hates me. You know, the Bible that's been written by men is choosing to ignore me from this narrative. So I have no problems with all made upstairs. We're good. We still speak. But it's the people and the organization that I have no desire to ever have anything to do with. So you kind of have to separate yourself from religion and spirituality. And I'm a very spiritual person, but I'm not a huge lover of religion. I think that takes a lot of bravery and a lot of thinking. Um, and self-reflection to get yourself lots of therapy (laughs) yeah well you know the more therapy the better (laughs) in my in my book absolutely you mentioned love Mm. I think we talk about self-love now more than perhaps humans have ever talked about that kind of concept before Mm. the idea of forgiveness and kindness to yourself but I feel like in the world of fashion Mm. It's not a lot of self-love. <laughs> You're <laughs> I feel not like there's, there's lots of self-loathing, babes. There's a lot more self-loathing. Like when I think about fashion, I immediately get a bit anxious. Mm-hmm. Shopping makes me anxious. Clothes make me anxious, even though there have been times in my life where I have loved dressing up. But 
the idea of the external assessments that are now inside my own head coming to bear when I try on new clothes, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be part of it. Is the fashion industry changing? Can it become a place where it makes people feel good about themselves rather than worse? Absolutely. Now, first and foremost, like I hear you, I see you, I feel you, I love you. All the things that you've just said are so deeply familiar to me and to the people around me. You know, we grew up, I hazard a guess, around a similar time where fashion was all about heroin chic, skinny, 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 you know, Victoria's Secret, going on like the cabbage soup diet to fit into a dress to wear to your cousin's wedding. So that was not a great time to be alive, let me tell you. And watching those things as a kid, you see all the women in my family diet tirelessly just to fit into a dress to go to a wedding. And I was like, this is not how fashion should be. Fashion has taken a huge turn. And we've seen over the last five years an almost uprising and the demise of self-loathing, skinny, skinny, only promoting the gaze of beauty to be white and thin. We've seen organisations like Victoria's Secret completely just be cancelled and, like, you know, Mm. have to rethink their whole business strategy because of this. And then we've seen this uprising of youth and the generations who are proud of their body, regardless of what size it is, regardless of whether it's able-bodied or not. We've seen people like Rihanna spearhead these new movements and celebrate all humans. So I'm really excited and I feel hopeful for the future of fashion. And I feel hopeful because of the hands in which it now belongs. It's never more belonged to us than ever before, really. Ever since the internet happened, you know, we don't have to wait for Vogue to come out every month now to hear what's hot and what's not, because you have no right to tell me what's not anything. So the internet has really democratised that movement and I think that the future of fashion is going to be more inclusive and more full of love because we are done with self-loathing. We don't need that shit. Well, if the future of fashion includes more Denny, then I am in. (laughs) Thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. My pleasure. This has been such a gorgeous conversation. Thank you for having me. That's it for my conversation with the sensational Denny Todorovic. You can catch their new podcast, What Are You Wearing, every Thursday on the Mamma Mia Network. Don't go away. Linda Mariano from Brooke and Linda's Dream Club will be here in just a moment for the weekend list. Welcome to The Weekend List, where we are joined by Linda Mariano, and she and I are going to get into your recommendations for what you are going to see, watch, do, read, all sorts of stuff this weekend. And I am going to kick us off with a watch. Morning Wars is back on Apple TV. If you remember Morning Wars, it is the show that debuted with enormous critical acclaim, starring Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon, right at the height of the Me Too movement and when the Me Too movement was really shaking up what was going on in Hollywood. The final episode of season one, spoilers, so many spoilers, so many spoilers, saw the two hosts of a morning TV show take a stand against the network they worked for and to kind of come clean about the toxic culture in their workplace on live TV. Season two picks up where we left off 
except the world is in flux. It's about to discover something called coronavirus, which is getting a little bit of coverage. And we're dealing with the fallout of the stand that these two women have taken. And what I love about season two so far is that it looks at what happens after women put their hands up and say, me too, that the story doesn't end there. Culture doesn't magically get fixed, that there is a whole lot of fallout, both for the people who deserve the fallout and the people who don't. A bombshell from journalist Maggie Brenner's upcoming expose on the behind the scenes troubles at UBA's The Morning Show. There is a pattern of behavior around here that disadvantages the people of color. We need to get our facts straight. We need to decide what the truth is. Linda, I think you've got to read for us. What have you been reading? I have been reading a few different books, but one that I absolutely moted through, I'm actually looking at it right now because I love a bit of a pink on a cover, a bit of green. Green is the colour of creativity. I don't know if you've heard. I need to look at more green. It's the debut novel from a young Sydney writer. Her name is Diana Reed. It's called Love and Virtue. I absolutely wolved through this. And if you know me at all, I'm a painstakingly slow reader. It takes me, people laugh at me at how long it takes me to read books. And it's not because I cannot read. It's because I'm like, I'll put it down. I won't pick it back up again for a little bit. This I couldn't stop with. People are calling Diana Reed like the new Sally Rooney. It's that sort of really intricate storytelling. It's her first novel. It's a coming of age novel. It's set in Sydney. It centers around two girls that become friends while they're living in a university dormitory. So it kind of covers all of these different beautiful things. There's a lot of stuff that we're talking about in the zeitgeist in terms of power and consent and class struggles from a really young Australian perspective. It's really cool. And then amongst that, the way that she describes scenes, the way that she describes university, it was exactly my sort of experience. I found it so beautifully relatable. All the descriptions of being in the halls, their kind of relationships with each other as they were making new friends, the tutors. And it had that really visceral summer in Sydney as well when she was describing the beaches and going for swims in the morning and the smells that were in the air. So I just loved her style and her tone as well as the content of the book. Love and Virtue is sitting somewhere on the giant pile that's about to fall over on my bedside table. I think I'm going to need to take it out and move it to the top of the pile. Give it a go, Jam. That's all I'm saying. You have something else that you're recommending as well. Are you recommending a book? I am. Mine is a non-fiction book, however. It is called Consumed, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change and Consumerism by Aja Baba. There are a lot of you who would have just heard that very long title and probably fallen asleep. But this book will do the opposite. What Aja does is she sets out from the very beginning of her book the fact that every item you buy remains on this planet in some form. So when you buy a piece of fashion, that is going to be around on this planet in some form for a very long time. And it's up to you to decide what form it takes. I really liked this perspective on consumerism because I am someone who wants to do better with the way I buy clothes and I want to live more sustainably. But Aja breaks down the fashion industry from a whole bunch of perspectives. So she looks at 
the injustices of consumer industries. She looks at the uncomfortable history of the textile industry and she looks at the fact that it brokered slavery and racism and it was a big player in today's wealth inequality. She also looks at how we spend our money and whose pockets that money ends up to and just as a bit of a spoiler, that money does not end up in the pockets of the people who actually do the work to make the garments we wear. But she isn't sort of one size fits all about this. She doesn't sort of say, okay, we all need to start op shopping and only ever buying hemp and more sustainable fabrics. She is realistic about this stuff. She says that the single best item for you to wear is what is in in your closet already, regardless of where it came from. I found that rather than making me feel guilty, as Mm. a lot of work in this genre does, it made me feel powerful, made me want to rise to the challenge of shopping more sensibly. And as someone who has really only bought tracksuits and activewear for the last 18 months, made me excited about fashion again and shopping my own closet, which hasn't got much of a workout for the last little while. Now, Linda, I'm going to ask very nicely, if you could please end out your recommendations with a little bit of self-love. Can you tell us about your (laughs) podcast? Well, just off the back of what you said, that made me feel really proactive and I haven't even read that book. And also a hot tip, don't just shop in your wardrobe, shop in a friend's wardrobe. Shopping your, I often shop in my mum's wardrobe and look at the stuff from the nineties and the eighties that she thinks are too daggy to wear now. And I go, I'm going to don that. Anyway, moving on, the self-love that I'm going to do and be extremely self-indulgent, but I'm genuinely so passionate about this project is Brooke and Linda's Dream Club. So it is the podcast that I get to do with one of my best friends every single week, Brooke Boney, who is, of course, the amazing entertainment reporter on the Today Show. We met years ago when we were both presenters on Triple J and We just get to have a hangout every week with you and essentially do what you and I are doing right now, which is recommend and talk about the most important pieces of content that you could be consuming. So whether it is the pasta dish that is trending, whether it is the book that everybody's talking about, the best film at the film festival, the podcast that you are just going to gobble up in your ears over the weekend or whether it's something big that's happened in the world of entertainment and culture. If it matters, Brooke and I will be picking apart those topics and talking about them each and every week on Brooke and Linda's Dream Club. Get on that right now, guys. It is, of course, on the Listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Linda, thanks for joining me for The Weekend List. Thank you for having me. That's it from us for this week, everyone. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode of The Weekend Briefing, then you have to subscribe, you have to like us, you have to follow us, partly because you want to listen to more, partly because I'm very needy and I'd like you to do that for me, please. You can also do that in the Listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a very nice review. The briefing team will be back with you bright and early on Monday morning. They will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Stay safe, everyone. Wash your hands, get vaccinated. See you soon. Listener.